episode 53, 28th of June 2012, the Chinese space programme. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org Even a cursory look at the Chinese spacecraft design indicates a close and obvious connection between the Chinese and the Soviet space technology. No doubt a result of the close geography and a shared political ideology during the Soviet era. In this episode, a space historian specialising on Chinese and Soviet-stroke-Russian space programme, outlines the history, current status and future of the Chinese space activities. Brian Harvey is a Dublin-based writer, author, broadcaster and probably the most informed specialist on Chinese and Soviet-stroke-Russian space programme in Ireland today. This conversation recorded during the Shenzhou 9 Tiangong mission whilst it orbited the Earth with the three crew, including the first Chinese female astronaut on board. The interview was recorded on 26th of June and published today, one day before the scheduled return of Shenzhou 9. December this year marks the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 17, the last group of three men to visit the moon in 1972. China today is making the largest strides in human spaceflight and many believe that the next man on the moon will be from China. Currently there are nine countries which have already placed satellites into low Earth orbit and can perhaps be considered as spacefaring nations. Brian Harvey is a Dublin-based writer, author, broadcaster and probably the leading specialist on Chinese and Soviet-Russian space programs in Ireland. He has contributed to national and international media, including the BBC. Now, Brian, you've arrived at the absolute pinnacle, astrotalkuk.org. Welcome. In, indeed, this will be the zenith of my career, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could talk about so many fascinating topics. Uh, you have such a, a depth uh, and wit in your experience. We'll restrict our conversation today to the Chinese space program. Okay. So, um, in fact, before that, um, I understand you have a telescope of your own, you've uh, done some eclipse chasing, and indeed, in 1961, you saw the second man in space, Titov, fly over Ireland. Yes, I was fortunate enough to see Germain Titov, who was the uh, second person to orbit the Earth, uh, fly over, tracking from a, a west to east um, uh, pathway across the sky, uh, a bright star uh, up in the heavens following across the sky in about three to four minutes, absolutely silently, so you knew it wasn't a plane or anything like that. Um, so I count myself very lucky as to have seen one of the, one of the earliest uh, manned spacecraft in, in Earth orbit. And I followed um, spaceflight events ever since. I do a little bit of astronomy. Uh, I like to actually combine the two by watching uh, space stations and spacecraft fly through the sky. I followed the, um, the first Russian space station, the Salute, 
uh, way back in 1971 and when the Soviet Union was doing regular rendezvous and docking missions up to the salute stations, I used to follow them from night to night. And it was actually quite important in terms of space watching because you would know whether they had docked or not the following night. So you could you could follow these missions in, in real time uh-huh. and indeed get the story ahead of the official announcement. So, so it was quite fun. And how significant was seeing Titov fly over Ireland in this shaping your future career? Oh, to- totally, uh, totally influential. I, ah. I thought this was the most extraordinary thing uh, to happen. So after that point, I sort of followed all the space flights. The next one after that uh, was John Glenn, and uh, which attracted huge attention throughout the world, quite rightly. Uh, I'd collect the newspapers uh, on, on all these events. And there was a time when there was, was a huge level of, much greater than today, public interest in this. But, and, and the climax, I think uh, we can all agree, was the, was the moon landing in, in, in 1969, where mm-hmm. anyone who had a television followed it that night. I remember seeing it with um, 50 or 60 other people because not everyone had an individual personal television, so people would watch these events in in, in groups. So it was quite a a communal experience, as it were. In the American space program, familiar people like Robert Goddard and, of course, Werner von Braun are well-known individuals. And in the Soviets, you have Salkovsky and Korolev. Who would you say are the key individuals in the Chinese space program in its history? The dominant figure was Chen Chushen. He was born in uh, 1911. He died in 2009. He almost made it to his, his hundred, like, like many long-lived Chinese people. Uh, Chen Chushen, although he was from China in the 1930s, he went to the United States on a scholarship, and he uh, turned into a uh, rocket engineer in the late 1930s. He was one of the people who established the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in California, which now leads uh, the American uh, interplanetary missions. Um, he was on the front cover of Time magazine in 1947 with his space planes. In 1951, Senator Joe McCarthy decided that he was a communist. Um, and along with 40 other colleagues, and by the way, there is no evidence that he was or mm-hmm. that he was spying or doing anything untoward, uh, he was expelled from China. Uh, and he was put on a boat all the way across the Pacific to uh, Hong Kong. Um, he got out there as soon as he uh, crossed the border into the People's Republic. He was greeted by the Chinese Foreign Minister Zhou Enlai, and within months he was sitting down having his dinner with Mao Zedong because they saw his huge capability as a rocket engineer and designer and leader, and they asked him to set up the Chinese space program, which he did uh, on the 8th of October 1956, which is an interesting date because it's uh, almost exactly a year before uh, the launch of the Sputnik. And mm. by the way, the Americans subsequently said that expelling Shen Shen was, quote, probably the dumbest thing we ever did. Uh, and I think that's probably an accurate, accurate summary of it, because he could have been uh, one of America's greatest space designers, but he wasn't. He became China's leading space designer, and he led up um, the Chinese march toward Earth orbit. Uh, China put its first uh, artificial satellite into Earth orbit in April uh, uh, 1970. It was the largest ever first satellite of any nation and then worked with the Chinese space program in the development of communication satellites in the 70s. Largely retired off the, off the scene after that, but his dominance as the leading personality of the Chinese space program is unshaken. And so he seems to have had a, a lot of different skills, not just as a rocket engineer. I, I, I think that the, the, the chief attribute of 
a successful chief designer is somebody who can manage. Uh, Korolev, who you mentioned in Russia there, was undoubtedly a great rocket engineer, but he was even better at knocking the heads together uh, that brought that made the space program work. And the, the great designers now would include people like von Braun, uh, other people in other countries, Vikram Sarabhai in India. Their, their achievements were in making the systems work, in dealing with the political side, in negotiating with the political leaders, in navigating um, the politicians, uh, the parliament um, mm-hmm. in communist countries, the communist party, um, the various design institutes that are the features of both the Chinese and Soviet space programs, in getting them to all work together to keep to a timetable to make sure the proper testing is done and keeping the quality control over the rocketry itself. Uh, and that, I think, was his real achievement, as it was that of Korolev in Russia. In general terms, what has China achieved to date in terms of the space technology infrastructure? In terms of its infrastructure, China now is quite an extensive space infrastructure. Um, Its original launching base was set up in Xuquan in northwest China uh, in the 1960s, and it was designed to be as far away from the coast as possible, as far away from America's U-2 spy planes as possible. (laughs) It wasn't successful at that. It was way out in the desert in northwest China, and that was where the early launches were undertaken. Um, When they built their communication satellites from 1984 onward, they needed a launch site much closer to the equator to to save them the distance of getting out to equatorial orbit. And they built a second launch site in Sichuan in southwest China in a place called Zaichung in in the mountains there. And then they subsequently used an old missile base called Taiyuan, just southwest of of, uh, Beijing for their um, uh, application satellites. Uh, That was very much the first wave, though, of Chinese space building. Um, There was a huge expansion of the Chinese space program from 1992, and the size of Zhukran was doubled for the upcoming manned space flight program. And China began investing uh, in in buildings and ground infrastructure and support enormously from the mid-1990s. They renovated all their equipment, and indeed their their very modern equipment um, and architecture would probably make the Russians weep because they haven't even had the bill for normal cyclical maintenance over the past 20 years. Uh, On top of that, China is now building a fourth and even bigger launch base on Hainan, which is the teardrop-shaped island off the south coast of China. And this will be used for their next generation of launchers, the Long March 5, 6, and 7. The launcher is so big that it's actually being built on the mainland and is then being towed by barge from the new site of Wenchang out to the new site on uh, Hainan Island, uh, where it will be used to launch very large payloads, 25 tons and so on, into orbit from uh, 2014. The Chinese also have a growing tracking network. Uh, Mm. Not only do they have, as you might expect, um, a number of tracking stations within China, they also have six large ocean-going ships called the Yuanwang. And these are deployed uh, throughout the world um, under the pathway of the manned spaceflight missions and under their space station to provide uh, communications uh, with them during the key points of orbital maneuvers. And they've also built a Chinese station in uh, Namibia um, in a place called Swapopmund. You might wonder why it's there. It's because it is over Swapopmund that the uh, re-entry burn takes place to bring their astronauts back to the Earth. And they also benefit from the use of other overseas stations in Pakistan, in Melinda, Melinda, Kenya, and also in Dogara in Australia as well. So they've been building quite an effective worldwide uh, tracking network. So the Chinese have a very 
uh, at this stage, sophisticated um, and extensive uh, space infrastructure. Something that the earliest space missions by the Americans and the Soviet Union didn't have, do the Chinese also have space-borne communication? Yes, they do. They, they have uh, the, the Tianlian, uh, which is their new um, communication satellite in 24-hour orbit. This is similar to the American, what's called the TIDRA system, or the Tracking and Data Relay satellite system. Uh, in the Soviet Union, it was called LUCH, meaning light, or, or in Russia, it's now called LUCH. And here, what they do is they put a satellite out to 24-hour orbit. Um, they have two Tianlians in orbit at the moment, and the mm -hmm. space station can communicate outward toward them. Um, Generally, once you establish an extensive Tianlian system, you don't then need the tracking stations and tracking ships on the ground quite as much. But the Chinese seem to be maintaining both of them in case they have outages on the orbital system. In terms of uh, their space achievements, we'll talk about the manned space program in a moment. But they've obviously been doing, I think you already mentioned, um, uh, in launching communication satellites, weather, earth, earth sensing uh, satellites and uh, also uh, have they done much in the way of interplanetary research as well? Yes, as you, as you correctly point out, after their initial satellites into Earth orbit in the 1970s, China then took a, a substantial step forward with communication satellites from 1984 onwards and th this was very challenging because they had to master the hydrogen technology necessary to get satellites out to 24-hour orbit. From the late 1980s, they began to launch an ever-growing range of application satellites in the way of uh, particularly weather forecasting, uh, more in the telecommunications front, uh, oceanographic satellites, the Haiyang, uh, Earth Resources Satellite like Ziyuan and Huanjing. Um, and, and, the, and these are now extensive to the point that China is now the second uh, spacefaring nation in the world in terms of numbers of launches every year uh, after mm -hmm. Russia, of course. Mm -hmm. so, so the Chinese program has broadened a lot in the past number of years. Interplanetary missions, though, and lunar missions are, are a comparatively recent feature. It wasn't until 2003 that a lunar program was approved. Uh, and China has since then flown two lunar missions called the Chang'e 1 and the Chang'e 2. Chang'e 1 went into uh, lunar orbit and subsequently was deliberately crashed onto the moon, but it was able to make a really excellent atlas of the moon. So the Chinese now have their own moon maps, their own topographical and chemical maps of the moon, their own interpretation of lunar history and so on. The second uh, Chang'e also went into low orbit, went into orbit around the moon, but it, it did two things that were different. First of all, it made swooping dives over the moon down to only 15 kilometers, and in particular, it did a detailed survey of the Sinus Iridum, which is to be the landing site for the next uh, lunar mission, the Chang'e 3, which will put a rover uh, into the Bay of Rains um, probably next year or the year after. And then, astonishingly, uh, Chang'e 2 left lunar orbit, it went to what's called Lagrange Point uh, mm -hmm. 2, I think, uh, which is a, 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 a position uh, away from the Earth um, and equidistant, in, in an equidistant position to the sun uh, where it's able to study solar radiation. And we've learned in the past few days that Chang'e 2 may be <clears throat> Uh, planning to be sent on its way further to visit an asteroid uh, early next year. Um, so uh, the Chinese have demonstrated, I think, an ability to, flow, to, to fly really quite sophisticated and challenging missions. And they seem to have done all of this with almost no te technical difficulties or faults on the way. Um, the Chinese had hoped to have a, a spacecraft on the, way to, on the way to Mars at the moment called the Yinghuo. 
um, which would have uh, flown with the Russian Phobos Grunt mission, but unfortunately the Russian side of that mission failed. Um, the Chinese will now be uh, following that up with a uh, lunar orbiter uh, in 2013, maybe 2015, um, which will go into orbit around the Mars, around Mars, and will photograph and characterize its surface. And it will also drop a 50 kilogram demonstration lander. It's, it is moving at phenomenal speed. So there are currently no plans for Martian rover in the Chinese space program? No, not yet, but they, they will not be far behind. <laughs> um, it, it's, they, they, they've written papers about them. Indeed, there's a huge output of published information in China about their various lunar and Martian ambitions. Um, although some aspects of the Chinese program are not as open as, they, as we might like them to be, um, to describe it as a secret program at this stage, I think, would not be at all fair um, because they are quite open about their what they have said they will do. They're open about their intentions. Their scientists are pretty free to publish um, throughout the world. Um, they contribute delegations to the international conferences and so on and so forth. Currently, there's uh, an interesting mission live at the moment, Shenzhou 9 and Tiangong 1. But before we talk about that, can you take us back to the launch of Tiangong 1 to November, September last year, I think it was, and just uh, remind us of uh, what happening what happened then and what's happening now uh, yes Tiangong uh, uh, one is china's first space station uh, the term space laboratory actually might be more appropriate it's not very large it's it's um, about the size of i think a caravan would be the the, the most most appropriate yeah, right. uh, uh -huh. analogy I, I, yeah. I could draw it's nothing on the size of the international space station at all which is a couple of hundred tons at this stage the Tiangong is only nine tons um, and it was put into orbit by the same rocket as they do for their manned space missions, the Long March 2F. Um, and it has been circling the Earth since September of last year. In October, November, um, the Chinese sent up the Shenzhou 8, but without anyone on board, to carry out an automated docking, undocking, redocking, undocking with the space station. And that seems to have gone perfectly from what we can see. Um, and the Changong has been patiently circling the Earth, awaiting its first human visitors, which it did eventually receive on the 18th of June. I think for those who know space programs well, it should be similar in size to the Space Lab, which was uh -huh. the small laboratory carried in the back of the American Space Shuttle, and which, I, which flew, I think it was 22 missions um, between, the early, between the late 1980s. And unfortunately, the last um, Space Lab type mission was the uh, Columbia, which, which burned up in 2003. But it's, it, it, and it was a laboratory in the back of the shuttle. And the Tiangong is similar in size to that. Uh, it's smaller than the original Russian space station, the Salute. But I think the important thing is there's plenty of space in there for the Chinese astronauts to uh, move around, to stretch out, to do exercises, to carry out experiments, um, and all the other things they need to do. It's more than adequate for those purposes. The Tiangong, uh, sorry, Shenzhou 9 mission that was launched, as you say, on the 18th of June, that is in some ways repeating what took place last autumn, but this time with a three-man and woman crew. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's a repeat mission. It will, incidentally, be the longest ever um, Chinese manned space mission. The previous longest mission was the Shenzhou 6, which orbited the Earth for five days. And this mission is going to run to 
uh, 13 days. So they're they're more than doubling um, their um, their longest space mission to date. Um, and what has happened here is the launching took place on the 16th of June. It included China's first space woman, uh, Liu Yang. Interestingly, but this was a coincidence. Uh, it took place on the 49th anniversary of the launch of the first ever uh, space woman, Valentina Tereshkova of the USSR. Two days later, the Shenzhou 9 docked with Tiangong in Earth orbit. The crew transferred into it, and they've been working in the Tiangong ever since, with the exception of the maneuver which took place two days ago, in which they undocked from the Tiangong, moved away to a distance of 400 meters, and then under manual control, um, the what's called the operator on, on the Shenzhou, Liu, Yang, Liu Wang, uh, moved the Shenzhou 9 back in uh, totally under manual control because they wanted to be able to test could they do manual docking if they needed to, if the automated systems broke down. And it went absolutely smoothly. There were no difficulties. And they reboarded the Tiangong where they are spending uh, the next three days. So on the 29th of June, um, they will then uh, pack their belongings, close down the Tiangong until its next visit, which will be the Shenzhou 10, uh, early in 2013. Um, they will then back away from the Shenzhou from uh, the space station. I presume that they will then fire retro rockets a couple of hours later, and and then be back uh, and then be back on the ground within a few hours of leaving the Tiangong. That will be the, the type of pattern followed on Shenzhou 8, and the type of pattern followed on the Russian Soyuz missions. What's the future of uh, Tiangong 1 after the end of this particular mission? Yeah, Tiangong will, will be boosted back up into a higher orbit using its own engine around about 375 kilometers. It's currently at 345, 343. And its, it's orbit will gradually de decay is the word that's used. It comes down because of atmospheric drag. Um, and by early next year, we can expect it to be back down to the 345 kilometer level, at which stage the Chinese will organize a second occupation uh, of the uh, Tiangong, um, either for the same period or maybe they will, they will go for a much longer length of mission. Uh, they could double the length of mission and, for example, spend a month on board. Um, and that will, according to the plans that we have seen by the end of the Tiangong mission, or the first one, they say they will do two more Tiangong missions between now and 2020. Uh, and that the, and the space stations will be um, manned and inhabited for ever longer periods. The idea being to build up the kind of experience in operating space stations that is necessary for their big space station, uh, mm -hmm. for which we do not yet have a name, but we do have a date, 2020. Uh, we will <laughs> shortly have a launcher for it, the Long March 5, which I mentioned earlier. Um, they will continue to use the Shenzhou, uh, Shenzhou spacecraft uh, for these missions. The design, interestingly enough, of their space station was originally something quite similar to the Soviet Mir space station of 1986, mm -hmm. which was a, a core block module of around uh, 20 tons into which other modules that could be either smaller or larger docked. However, the most recent iterations of the Chinese space station design show um, that it's going to be much larger than that and is going to be some way halfway in size between uh, the Mir space station um, and the International Space Station. So the, it seems, to, in other words, it seemed to have grown in ambition in the past couple of years. 
Um, and there's, there's no technical difficulty why the, why the Chinese can't do this. But it will be quite interesting from the point of view of the, the watcher on the ground, as it were, because the International Space Station um, hopefully will still be flying after 2020. Um, and it is very much the brightest object in the sky. Uh, and we will be able to watch the Chinese building their space station and we'll be able to watch it getting ever bigger um, in the night sky until by the mid-2020s there'll be two very large space stations in mm. the heavens. One run by the United States, Russia, Canada, Japan, the European Space Agency and their colleagues and the other run by China. Uh, and I think China will be able to demonstrate visually at least to the world that it will have achieved full parity with all that the rest of the world spacefaring nations can do together. Mm. And is the plan for Tiangong-1 to uh, eventually, when its operational life is over, to bring it back down to Earth, re-enter, I, I guess, destructively? No, or... They've already announced that it'll be crashing to the Southern Ocean. Oh. Um, it, it will do a retrofire maneuver over non-shipping lanes where, where ships don't travel. Mm -hmm. This is what the Russians do with their progress spacecraft whenever they have been finished after their work at the International Space Station, and it will then burn up and re-enter. It's highly unlikely that much would, would reach, as I say, the ground, but I do mean the ocean mm -hmm. uh, in any case, and that's what they've said they do with Chang'an when, when, it's, when it's finished its mission. Ah, I, I thought, why don't they leave these um, modules up there with the view to, in jigsaw fashion, build up the um, much larger space station? Because getting this kind of heavy equipment up there in the first place is quite, quite expensive and a bit of a task. I, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, however, I think the, the current view is that they are uncertain as to the durability right. of their space equipment at this stage. They, they wouldn't guarantee it for an ever longer period than, than a couple of years at this stage. I think once they begin to fly equipment in space for longer and longer periods, they will be able to make it work forever longer. Uh, let's not forget, for example, that the original module on the International Space Station, um, the um, what's called the FGB, or the Functional Control Box, was launched in 1998 at a guaranteed life of 15 years. Now, mm. it's still flying. <coughs> My guess is it'll still be flying after 20 years. And granted that this was originally the Mir 2 space station and that it was actually manufactured in the early to mid-1980s, um, the Russians certainly have experience of making space equipment go on forever. I think the Chinese are probably being more cautious about that at this stage. What's the current thinking for the Chinese space program for a, a lunar, manned lunar landing? Okay, the, the Chinese have not laid down any missions beyond China 6, which will be a lunar sample return mission in 2019-2020. Right. Uh, however, we do have a very good a guide as to Chinese intentions, and it's called Roadmap 2050. Mm. And this was an exercise done by the Academy of Sciences in China uh, in the past two years to look at what is the future of China in science. It's not just space exploration, and indeed space exploration was only one of 18 areas put under detailed studies, the others being, for example, the computer technology, nanotechnology, uh, preventative medicine, uh, wind energy, uh, lasers, and so on and so forth. And um, in their report, the Academy of Sciences uh, sketched out a, a very, very ambitious space program up to the year 2050, uh, set in the context of China being the world's leading scientific nation by 2050. Uh, the mm -hmm. aim was that by 2050, more scientific papers would be originated in China than any other country. More inventions 
would be made in China by, than any other country, and it would be the most technologically driven country in the world. And they, they laid out a very solid basis as to how they thought they would do that. The paper was very self-critical of weaknesses um, in uh, Chinese uh, technology and society, uh, including the space space program. So this was this was not uh, a, a a bland uh, self-congratulatory document at all. At all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, they they did sketch out uh, a number of things that were were really important above and beyond the things I mentioned to you. Um, first of all, it did suggest a, a radical expansion in China's space science program, which hitherto has not been very prominent. There have been space science missions, but They've not been a major part of the space program, and under Roadmap 2050, it is proposed that these be expanded very, very substantially into all kinds of uh, missions to explore the galaxies, stars, uh, the planets, and so on. Um, They do propose that there be a Chinese lunar base uh, from the year 2030, a Martian landing from the year 2040, and a Martian base from the year 2050. But I think it's worth stressing that these are ambitions. They are not government-approved projects. Uh, And until such time as they are government-approved projects, they're not going to happen. But once they are government-approved projects, they will happen. When the government put a plan together, they achieve it. It's very rare, particularly in this field, uh, that A, the original objectives are met, and B, they're met to the timescales that that were set originally. But the Chinese government, okay, it's communist, but in name only these days, once it makes a plan, it it sticks to it. And that's the pattern of the last few five-year plans. Just amazed that these days, the current mission, which is available and transmitted live to the world, which is not what the Soviets did in, in their day. Yes, the Chinese, I think, have a growing confidence in hmm. their ability to, to carry out space missions uh, under, under public scrutiny. I think the way in which their space planning is, is, is done is like this. Um, as you correctly say, once a government decision is made, it is generally adhered to. The time schedules may slip a little bit, but the principles uh, don't. Um, the Chinese space program is not subjected to day-to-day, year-by-year scrutiny of the type that happens to the American space program. Mm. Um, the American space program, as you know, is, is proposed by the president to the Congress. The president proposes, Congress disposes. Um, and the American Congress has been in the habit for many, many years of chopping and changing the space program year after year. And this results in considerable levels of discontinuity in the American space program, uh, in programs being axed, added on, taken away, added to, and as soon as that's over, the next year's campaign begins pretty well straight away. And this can be create quite a difficult planning environment from American space missions. Uh, for example, only recently, the Congress Act axed some of the budget for Mars missions. As a result, the Americans simply had to cancel a number of Mars missions and pulled out of joint collaborative projects with Europe, uh, which caused the Europeans uh, considerable uh, difficulties and problems, and and not a little anger, I think, as well. Um, So that um, the the Chinese program isn't subjected to those kind of pressures. Um, The Chinese space spending is not actually very high, contrary to what we might think. Its budget Uh is quite low. They must use that budget very economically. Um, they have a fanatical emphasis on quality control. Um, the engineers have been told, you do not have the luxury of your rockets exploding. Uh, they must be got right every single time. We can't have failures. And indeed, there's been only one Chinese launch failure since 1996, 
which was last August when the second stage of a rocket failed to get into Earth orbit. But that was their first disappointment since 1996 of that kind. Ah, so it's this uh, silly thing called democracy that's getting in the way here. Uh, in the Western. I, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that because, and I, I, if I could give you a comparison, the European Space Agency has to work um, not only within a democracy but a, a democracy of 20 nations. Mm -hmm. And what it, what the European Space Agency does is it develops um, not just four-year plans but eight-year plans and 12-year plans. So it plans framework missions many, many years ahead. And um, it has to negotiate budgets between those 20 different member states. But once Europe agrees to a budget for a set of space programs, generally those budgets are adhered to. And Europe is, I think, a good example uh, through the European Space Agency of a combination of nations, in fact, the most ambitious combination of natures, nations that have managed to combine both uh, democracy, democratic accountability, and long-term planning all together. Now, it's not easy. It's never been easy. Um, the negotiations that go around the biennial uh, European Space Agency summits can be quite difficult. But once something is agreed, there is a well-established pattern um, that the 20 governments or so do adhere to that which they agree to. Um, so I think it can be done. Oh, you, you've just brought me to the very last thing I had on the plan for today. Last week, there was a very low-key announcement that Ireland had signed a space cooperation memorandum with, the, uh, with Russia. Now, Ireland uh, is a member of the European Space Agency. It has been for two or three decades now. It was a very low-key announcement. <clears throat> what did you make of it? Well, I was very interested in it because there's been no coverage of it in the domestic Irish press. Ireland does have a long tradition of working with Russia, but it's been informal uh, uh, contact between the scientists involved, the leading scientist uh, in Ireland being Susan McKenna Lawler. Um, she's a, a leading scientist who flew equipment on the uh, Russian Phobos mission in 1988 to which, 9, which orbited Mars. She also flew on the European Giotto uh, mission to Comet Halley. Uh, she also had equipment uh, on the um, uh, Chinese Tansei Double Star mission in 2003 and is involved in future missions with the Chinese. So, granted the um, uh, difficult budgetary environment in Ireland, I was surprised and delighted to see Ireland signing up to these things. Um, the issue of scientific involvement has been a problem one within Ireland and our Department of Finance has uh, many times sought to withdraw Ireland from the European Space Agency. Um, Ireland was indeed an example of a country that joined the European Space Agency uh, literally I think at a few minutes to midnight before its closing date for uh -huh. opening founder members which was the 31st of December 1975 if my dates are correct and for any political scientists interested in looking into a story I would be I would just love them to go into the papers and see how did such a small country as Ireland manage to get itself into the European Space Agency at such an early stage because it has brought quite a, quite a lot of significant benefits to the country mm -hmm. and to its high-tech industry so it was it was a good decision made at the time and a good example of how small countries can benefit successfully from space research. Brian Harvey, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.